Today, we're talking about terrorism. We'll discuss Americans who join terrorist groups or anti-terror militias, and we'll talk about torture. I'm Kay Summers, and I'm joined by Joe Young. Joe is a professor at American University's School of International Service and chair of the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at AU's School of Public Affairs. He's an expert on terrorism and the causes of political violence, ISIS, and torture. Joe, thanks for joining Big World. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Joe, you study an area that has been pervasive in our national discourse mainly since 2001, but which continues to be wildly misunderstood by most people. I'm hoping we can zero in on a few questions within this this large subject. So starting with the paper Measuring Terrorism, you say that very little research explores how terrorism influences social outcomes like democracy. And you argue that this lack of research limits important questions about the impact of terrorism. So first, a really basic question. What's the biggest misconception Americans have about terrorism? Well, I think Americans have quite a few misconceptions about terrorism, but I think our biggest probably misconception is that it is a tactic that groups just use and only use. And so we use terms like terrorist, which suggests that someone just runs around doing terrorism all the time. And terrorism, I think, is uh, a choice that a group or individual will make vis-a-vis other kinds of choices, and they often make terrorism choices, and they often make not terrorism choices. So we basically paint people's broad brush. If you're if you do a, if you commit an act of terror, you are by nature a terrorist, and there is nothing else to consider about the activities of this individual or group. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That and you know so we could also take an example because it's often seen as a pejorative, mm-hmm. right? That someone does terrorism, but there are all kinds of groups that we think of as pretty positive that have committed acts of terror. So even if we go back to the founding of our country, the Sons of Liberty was a group that violently opposed the British, which used acts which many of us would consider terrorism, but we don't call them terrorists. Um, And I'm suggesting that groups often do lots of different things. Terrorism is one of them, and using that label will get muddied and will allow us to just kind of make a moral or pejorative views about the people who do those things. Right. And we, we also tend, I think, to apply the word to people who do things that we don't like. So we like what the American revolutionaries were doing, and we don't call it terrorism. Yes, I think, and, and another great example of that are the Contras in uh, Nicaragua, who the U.S. government supported, and we didn't want to use the terror label on them, but they did plenty of terrorist actions, um, and then you know groups like ISIS and Shining Path and others that we really oppose um, that do a lot of things, and maybe ISIS is the worst example, but so um, we maybe backtrack that a little. But there are lots of other groups that do tons of, of things besides terrorism, but we just paint them as terrorists. Interesting. So I'd like to look for a minute at Americans who choose to either fight or either join or fight against terrorist organizations, not as members of the U.S. Armed Forces, but as individuals. So let's begin with the Americans who travel to Iraq and Syria to join ISIS or another terrorist group. How many American citizens have tried to or succeeded in joining ISIS and other radical terrorist groups? And do we have any idea what might motivate them to do that? So it's surprisingly few mm-hmm. compared to other places, and there are lots of reasons for that. But um, you know, we don't. It's hard to have a really perfect count of that things, but it's it's probably somewhere south of 200 people who've who've successfully done it or tried, and we've intervened. Uh, what happens is that we don't really know, um, you know, why they go. It's it, we don't really know why they go because it's kind of hard to to get inside of that, but. Um, once they're there, we have a better sense of, you know, kind of why they're doing what they're doing. 
you know, from criminology, we often assume that younger people tend to be more violent, older people sort of age out of crime. And um, one factor, which I think isn't unique to ISIS or any other group or any other violent organization, is that people want to have adventure. And so a lot of, uh, is, be, is being made about religion, but groups that are individuals that have joined ISIS aren't necessarily super religious. They don't grow up in religious families usually. A lot of times they're recent converts. So religion's probably not the number one explanation. I'm sure it's it's part of it, it's part of the story. But I think a big part of the story is people just are excited and want adventure and want to do something violent. There's a thrill-seeking mm-hmm. factor. Yes, absolutely. Interesting. So it's not just radicalization, which is the term we always hear when individuals join groups like that. Yeah, and that's a really challenging term because it assumes that there's this process that people go through and it's like four steps and you do these four steps and you get to this thing called being a radical. But we see people who join ISIS who don't really have an understanding of the Quran. They don't really know, uh, they haven't been indoctrinated into the ways of thinking. Um, But they've decided to make that choice and it's either, you know, Sometimes people go through a process, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they express really violent views and then join ISIS, sometimes they don't. Um, and so it's, it's a troubling concept and it isn't a clear line that people follow and you have plenty of people who don't really express awful things and then go and do an awful things. Mm-hmm. So a lot of media attention and academic research has focused on Americans who break the law in a big way by joining US designated terrorist organizations. We talked about that, partly because of the security threat they pose if they return to the U.S. You argue in the paper, Transnational Volunteers, that less is known about the Americans who join anti-ISIS militias like the Kurdish YPG. So in this category of people, how, how many people are we talking about? Is this the same small number? Is this not really as big of a thing as we might think? Yeah, it's a, it's a similarly small number, probably even a little less, but um, we've been able to find about 80 to 100. There's probably a few more. We've talked to about a dozen of them. Uh, and so I think part of the story for why both numbers are pretty small is geography, right? It's very hard to get over to these places. Um, the other thing is we don't have the same issues that uh, Europe has in terms of assimilating people into cult- our culture. And so in both situations, um, you know, we see less people joining both groups from the U.S. than from Europe. Mm-hmm. And when you say we've talked to, have, have you actually had uh, the opportunity to, to talk with these individuals in interviews? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so I guess that's kind of fascinating. That's not a position most of us would be in. Is there is there anything that, I shouldn't say is there anything that surprised you? I'm sure a great many things surprised you about those conversations, but is there anything that really uh, stands out that you think people should know? Well, it's hard to talk to the people who want to join ISIS because it's illegal. Right. And so I haven't talked to those folks, although I've done research and secondary research on the on those types of folks. But the people who are joining the YPG and some of the Kurdish groups, it's not illegal. Mm-hmm. So they're actually quite chatty. It's not as challenging. Uh, you can find them online. You can find them through social media, through other uh, contacts. And what's interesting is similar to the some of the people who are joining ISIS, they have needs for going abroad and fighting. Um, a lot of them are uh, some a reasonable portion are ex-military who have a feel like they they went to the Middle East to you know kind of rectify what happened on 9/11, and we left Iraq too soon, and they need to go back and finish the job. Um, now that's a little different, I think, than people who are joining ISIS, but similarly they feel very. Um, 
they feel a strong pull to be there. So did you talk to people who had been there and were planning on going back? Uh, were these people who were saying, I'm done with this, this was not what I intended for it to be, or, or some mix of both? Yeah, it was a mix of both. And so some people, um, one of the big frustrations for people who have gone and joined the YPG and other, other groups like this is that they want combat jobs and they want to do something exciting. Uh, and oftentimes the Kurdish militia groups are nervous they don't want dead Americans. Mm -hmm. That's bad PR for them. Right. And so they will give them jobs that sometimes they feel, the Americans feel are not up to what they would like to do, driving a truck, for example. And so um, part of the frustration was they didn't get the job they wanted. Um, you know, they felt, uh, another piece of frustration that we saw is that they they felt like the U.S. wasn't really supporting them in the way that they should have, uh, and especially in the most recent rounds of, um, Turkey attacking these Kurdish groups, they felt in some ways betrayed also that the U.S. government didn't uh, take a strong stance. Wow, okay. So they were disillusioned as well as kind of disillusioned in a lot of ways. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very much. So does any of this activity resemble anything that we've seen before in the sense of talking about post 9-11? Is this the post 9-11 version of the fight against fascism that led Americans to join the Republicans? Um, fighting Franco in the Spanish Civil War. Is there some sort of historical precedent for this behavior, or is it specific to today's conflicts? I know we just talked about the Revolutionary War, so I'm guessing there's there's precedence for this in history. Yeah, I'm kind of a curmudgeon on this point in the sense that <laughs> I I don't think very much is new in human mm -hmm. behavior. Um, you know, we have examples of, of terrorist organizations and terrorist violence in biblical times, mm -hmm. and I don't think that there's much new going on where, where some people are like, oh, there's all these new kinds of terror groups and um, technology is changing everything. And I, I'm kind of, like I said, I'm one who thinks it's all, it's all similar and you, we, the names and faces change, but the processes are quite similar. And so we saw, you know, and, and David Mallett, who's actually coming to join American University this year, we're excited about that. He wrote a book on foreign fighters and they, he catalogs a lot of foreign fighters um, throughout history and we see similar patterns of behavior. I think what's unique about right now more is, you know, we've seen uh, people join external fights um, in uh, lots of different contexts, but it's easier now. Mm -hmm. So I think we're seeing probably a quantitative difference, but not necessarily a qualitative difference. We're still seeing lots of people joining for all kinds of reasons and joining their ethnic kin in different locations mm -hmm. and, and going to far off places. Certainly the motivation for jihadis is ostensibly religion, um, but at, like I was saying before, I think it has more to do with the same underlying thing that led people to you know, fight with the Roman Empire is like mm -hmm. excitement and, and the ability to kill without retribution. And certainly religion's been a, a, a cause or at least an, a, an excuse given for violence for thousands and thousands of years. Forever. And, mm -hmm. and even as early as the 1960s, right, it was Marxism. And Marxism was the thing that led people to want to go to these other places to kill people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, But whether it's religion, Marxism, Christianity, Islam, whatever, uh, I think that that's uh, unrelated to the fact that people want adventure and excitement. And this is an opportunity to do that. For take five on Big World, Joe, we ask our guests to take a few minutes and daydream out loud. It's an I, if I ran the world type question. If you could right now single-handedly institute five policies or practices that would change the world for the better, what would they be? 
So in your case, Joe, if you could change any aspect surrounding how America deals with terrorism, what five things would you do? Thank you. And <laughs> I get, I, the uh, answer first is always you want to have one wish to be 20 more things that I can wish for. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, the genie. I want to. <laughs> but realizing I can't do that. Yeah. Robin uh, Williams said you can't do that. Right. I'm Aladdin, you can't do that. I remember that. <laughs> um, but the first thing I would do, which is, and some of mine are going to be pretty controversial. Okay. Um, I like to be controversial on purpose sometimes. But uh, the first thing I would absolutely do is end the Syrian civil war. Uh, and I'm not sure exactly how I would do it, but that's not an important thing here, right? Uh, because I think that would end this uh, or at least mitigate the big refugee problems we're having right now uh, it would lessen foreign fighters we're seeing across the globe it would dampen um, superpower competition right now I would I would figure out how to do that mm -hmm. um, I think the second big policy issue that I would try and tackle is I would have a ban of using any clash of civilizations kind of arguments within our, our foreign policy establishment um, I think you know, the Bush administration right after 9-11 was very clear when they when they were starting the war on terror that this was not an America versus Islam versus Muslim world. Uh, and, in, you know, wh whether you thought the war on terror was a good idea or a bad idea, they purposefully added North Korea and, um, and you know, and, and other countries that weren't Islamic so that it made it clear that this wasn't a West versus everybody else uh, war. And so I would absolutely make sure that we were doing similar things in the sense that we're not going to make this about Islam versus the U.S. And in our security, all of our security challenges, we're going to focus on U.S. Uh, security issues uh, and try to, to dampen down that rhetoric. So the third one, which is really big and hard, is I would try to make our electoral system in the United States more consensus-based rather than more majoritarian as it is right now, because I think one of the biggest challenges in creating um, the divisiveness in our country is we have big winners and big losers in our electoral system. And when somebody loses in the formal system, then they wanna go outside the system and use violence. And I, I'm worried about that, I'm nervous about that, and I would make it so that, uh, you know, and, and originally in our constitution, the loser of the presidency got the vice presidency. Things like that, that allow the opposing party to have some say in, in you know in the system the loyal opposition instead yes of just the opposition. and to make them uh, you know more consensus based um, and then the fourth thing I would do is I would around the world I would back democracy period um, and where in the past I think the US has and that's regardless of ideology sometimes a democracy has uh, is led by a leftist group we don't like and we would call communist or maybe a more Islamist group but I would back democracy where, wherever we saw it and oppose autocracy whenever we saw it. I think all, all kinds of academic research suggests democracies don't fight each other, are good on all kinds of dimensions like treating their own people better and, um, and I would just, I would do that. Sometimes the U.S. speaks in both sides of our mouth on this issue and I wouldn't let that happen anymore. And then the other thing I would do internationally is I'd end all internment camps that we have. Um, I think those are breeding grounds for uh, extremism. They create all these externalities that make people angry at the U.S. As we know, the head of ISIS, uh, al-Baghdadi, was held in, in one of these kinds of camps, and he helped recruit other people and, and radicalize other folks. Um, so that's the, the final thing. I know those are all wild and crazy, um, but I think they would make a difference. Well, one theme I was getting from that is that it sounds like we're getting in our own way in a few different ways. I think so, yeah. Okay. Thank you. So shifting to Americans at home, 
I want to take a look at how Americans view torture as a counterterrorism tactic. Support for torture largely falls along party lines in the U.S., with 7 out of 10 Republicans supporting and 7 out of 10 Democrats opposing it. And Donald Trump famously promised to bring back waterboarding and a hell of a lot worse. But you write that an individual's support of torture is not fixed and can be swayed, that there are a couple of factors that can impact an individual's support of torture. First, whether the subject of torture is presumed guilty, and second, whether the torture is taking place far away from the individual who's being asked about it. So basically a problem that's far away from me is not as big of a problem for me. But expert consensus, including military interrogators, is that torture is not effective. It just doesn't work. What do you think accounts for these varied perceptions of torture's effectiveness, and why do some Americans continue to support torture? Well, it's a, it's a great question. It's a question that keeps me up at night um, as someone who, who also feels there's a moral component. Should we do it or should we not? And that's not really the point of this. It's, uh, the point of this is more what's an effective counterterrorism tool, and then why do people support those effective or ineffective tools? And we've done a series of experiments, and we're still doing experiments right now to examine that, that question. And people are more supportive of torture when they see it as being effective. So definitely the media's portrayal of torture as being effective or ineffective is going to shape people's opinions about that, which, which is a little scary and brings up all kinds of moral questions as to whether or not we should be censoring media or we should be purposely putting media out that's accurate. Um, that's, a, I think, a big, big part of it. Mm -hmm. And you, you conducted an experiment examining how media affects Americans' perceptions of torture, specifically by showing them clips of the television show 24. I remember when 24 first came out in 2001, uh, there were a lot of opinion pieces about it for a lot of reasons, but some of them cast it in that category of torture porn, of, you know, using this in, in a way that had not been seen before. So does media, including news media and fictional TV programs and movies, I think you kind of answered this, does this contribute to or change how Americans think about torture as a tool of counterterrorism? So seeing Jack torture um, someone he's interrogating, that, that makes us think that it works? Yeah, our, our experiments suggest that's what is actually going on. The, the more nuanced piece of it, which we're trying to unpack through other experiments, is that what we think is happening is that people are really stimulated by watching violence mm -hmm. in, in such a way that the appropriate response is violence. Mm -hmm. And um, so we've also added some experimental conditions where we just show people doing violent things and then ask them similar questions whether they think torture is appropriate or inappropriate. And what we're finding is that the, the mechanism is what I'm suggesting here, which is I'm just really stimulated by watching violence, which does raise these sorts of questions. Should we, you know, we should probably tamper down our use of violence mm -hmm. in, in the media. The U.S. as opposed to Europe, we tend to allow much more violence in our public, whatever we want to say, media, discourse, whatever, where in Europe you will see nudity more mm -hmm. readily. Um, I'm not suggesting we should have porn everywhere, but um, that's a trade-off, I think, as a society we've made, mm -hmm. and I, there are consequences to that. As you're looking back now, because 24 was around for a few years and then it came back last year, I think. Do you think that show in particular has had a lasting impact on how torture or violence in general is portrayed in popular culture? Did it did it kind of ramp things up? Did it make it where, you know, the bar was raised and you had to show more and more gratuitous violence? And uh, did, has it had an effect? It definitely has had an effect 
And well, I, I don't know, I can't say if it's 24 or if it's the post 9-11 world, right. but we saw just an incredible increase in the depictions of torture in, in media. And so I don't know if 24 was the canary in the coal mine or whether it was driving that, but um, we definitely saw, and I think it was the parents, there was a TV group, the, like the Parents Research Council or something that actually tracked this, and they found a, a large increase in the post-9-11 world in depictions of violence like this and, and through torture. And if you've watched Homeland or Law and Order or whatever the show is, I'm sure you've seen torture experiences and you've probably seen increases since 9-11. And in some of this research, when you're talking about how it kind of makes people want to go do violence, is there research, are we looking at brain scans to see kind of what part of the brain is lighting up when they see this? Do we know if it's the amygdala or what, you know, what are we getting into with people's systems that's making that happen? I would love to do that research. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone has done that, although there's really cool research that's being done by philosophers mm -hmm. um, that's in the same space. Um, the problem or the challenge with that is it's really expensive, yeah. right? Because you have to have MRI machines mm -hmm. and you have to be able to inject contrast into people's um, veins. And so I, I would love to do that. I, I just need a couple million. <laughs> okay. If you do it, remember it was my idea. I got it. Right? Yeah, okay. yeah. You get a cut. <laughs> okay. So we started with a big question, and I'd like to end with one as well. Simply put, do, you, do we think about terrorism too much? Well, I know I do um, <laughs> as part of my job. But I think prior to 9-11, the pendulum was too far in the opposite direction in the sense that we weren't thinking about it enough. If you remember when the first, uh, well, the second Bush administration came to power, the first thing they did as a foreign policy item or tool was to reinforce missile defense in Europe, not recognizing that the main threat to U.S. security at that time were from non-state actors like Al-Qaeda. I think post 9-11 it swung full in the opposite direction and we lost sight of some other important foreign policy goals. And I'm, I guess what I'm suggesting is a more moderate, I think terrorism is a big problem in the international system and, and an important security challenge and one we should always have people worried about and thinking about, but we should also realize it's not the most important existential threat to our society and should be put in a basket with all kinds of other challenges to our, our security. The proper perspective. Joe, thank you for joining Big World and speaking with me about a couple of really hard topics. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Big World is a production of the School of International Service at American University. Our theme music is It Was Just Cold by Andrew Codeman. Until next time.